Welcome to Writer Types, great conversations with today's top crime and mystery writers. My name is Eric Beatner, and with me is the Rudolph leading my reindeer. It's S.W. Loudon. Steve, it's December. It's the end of the year. It's our year-end show, and we've got some great guests. It's truly a holiday miracle, Eric. Author Brian Gruley explains why he had to reschedule our interview. Not you, it's me. I got kidnapped. I'm out of here. And Terry Shames tells us what happens when listeners don't share the latest episode of Writer Types with their friends and family. People might at the most spend six months in jail. Plus, author Scott Vondoviak wonders if being on the show is going to help his writing career. Uh, I don't think so. So if you're listening, you know, don't do that. Plus, we get some end-of-the-year book picks from the Malmans. And since this is our last show of the year, Steve, and actually the last show before we take a little bit of a hiatus until February of next year, let's talk about some of our favorite reads of 2018. I think that's a great idea. And you know what, Eric? Since I always go first, and because this is our last episode for a while, I'm going to go first again. One that I recently read is a collection of short stories called Bloodshot and Bruised by our friend, Travis Richardson. He is a tremendously talented short story writer, and this collection really brings together some of his best and darkest tales from the last few years. If you aren't already familiar with Travis Richardson's work, this is a really great place to start. Well, I really loved a bunch of books from people we've been lucky enough to have on the show. Uh, and one of those was Bluff by Michael Cardos. It was just a really twisty story about a magician turned con woman. And one of my favorite reads of the year because it took me to such unexpected places. You know, Eric, I actually have three authors uh, at the back half of my list that are people who've been on the show. But before I get to them, I want to talk about one author that I'd hope to have on the show down the road once he gets done serving out his time for bank robbery in prison. Oh. And his name is Nico Walker, and he wrote a semi-autobiographical novel about the Army, PTSD, heroin, and of course, bank robbery that's called Cherry. I picked up this book because it had been recommended to me by a couple people, and I have to say the writing, the story, the subject matter really challenged me in a lot of ways. But in the end, I, I just had to admit that this book had me by the throat from the start. Well, that's great. I've heard of that, but I have, I've not read it. I'm going to add that to my list. Well, a book you should add to your list, Steve. Yes. Uh, a Perfect Shot by Robin Yoakum. And this was a book that I saw other people talking about on Twitter, and it just sounded kind of up my alley. And I took a shot at it. And this was absolutely something that, like you say, grabbed me by the throat. And I was so into this book. And it really reminded me that crime fiction and all fiction is really about character. And this book had just some of my favorite characters of the year. It really took me into this world. But Robin Yoakum uh, suddenly became an author that was immediately on my radar. Uh, and I've got, I think, three more books lined up uh, by him to, to check out, and I'm, which I'm real excited about. Well, I definitely wrote that one down. And uh, as you guys know, we had Nancy Rommelman on the show a couple episodes ago talking about her excellent nonfiction book, To the Bridge. Um, I don't read a ton of nonfiction, but this one really grabbed me and uh, I highly recommend it. One of the books that a lot of people talked about early on in the year and were already putting on best of lists was Sunburn by Laura Lippman. And I get skeptical of any book that people compare to James Cain and, and people throw around uh, the noir 
tag on things. So I'll, I will admit to being a little bit skeptical when I went in, but I trust Laura Lippman as an author enough. And man, did this book deliver. It is such a unique twist on a lot of noir tropes that makes it completely unique and totally modern. I was really blown away that, by Sunburn. Yeah, I loved that book. Uh, another one that I read this year by a friend of the show is Give Me Your Hand by Megan Abbott. It's a totally gripping psychological thriller about two young women who work in the same lab, but they share a dark secret. And what I loved about this was the way Abbott handled the shifting perspectives from the past to the present. It really kept the pages turning. Yeah, she's good like that. She can write. <laughs> yeah, I've heard. <laughs> Walter Mosley is an author that I find hard to keep up with sometimes. He's so prolific. Uh, and he's got uh, several different series going on, but he put out a book this year called Down the River Unto the Sea, which is uh, a, a, it's a new character and one that kind of surprised me a little bit. It turned out to be a lot more hard-boiled, I think, than I was expecting. It's it's a real kind of tough-as-nails story. But again, as a character, I was totally compelled and drawn into this story that took me to places that I just was never expecting. And that is the mark of a great book. And Walter Mosley is one of those authors who can almost do no wrong. But this one was a, a cut above for the stuff of his that I've read. For my final book, I chose November Road by Lou Burney. Eric, you and I have talked about it a lot. You know how much I love The Long and Far Away Gone. And a lot of that had to do with uh, how much I loved Burney's voice in that novel. And I think that Bernie's voice is just as strong in November Road, but it's a totally different story that takes some twists and turns that I really didn't see coming. And I just love this book. Yeah, you stole that off my list. Uh, <laughs> and I, I, that was actually a perfect example of a book that I was also growing increasingly skeptical of when everyone is heaping praise on this book. And I was like, okay, it can't be that good. And God, the son of a bitch, he did it. It's that good. <laughs> Yeah, they're not yelling boo, Eric. They're yelling loo. <laughs> well, yeah, that, that would have absolutely made my list had you not stolen it first. But uh, for my uh, final pick, I'm going to put The Bouncer by David Gordon, another author that we were lucky enough to have on the show. An author that I had not read previously. I, I had seen uh, his books around and had heard about him, but this was the one that I, I jumped in on. Totally loved it. And uh, as you would hope happens with readers, I finished that. And I think within two weeks, I had gone back and picked up one of his earlier books, The Serialist, and uh, read that, also loved it. So I, I was hooked and found a new uh, favorite author to have on the shelves. Yeah, there's nothing quite like starting a literary podcast to uh, significantly increase your TBR pile. But man, for a, for a really weird year, 2018 produced some amazing books. Absolutely. We just talked about a lot of writers who've been on this show in the past year. And there's another writer who's about to be on this show who's made a lot of favorite lists over the years, and his name is Brian Groovy. Brian has written the Starvation Lake trilogy, and now he's back with a brand new book in a brand new setting, Bleak Harbor. Well, Brian, thank you for joining us. And we're catching you on an eventful week. You just had your birthday. And I also saw that you showed off a photo of your new book, Bleak Harbor, with a little number one next to it. How does that feel for a book's debut week? Uh, you know, that was cool for, uh, I think I was there five or six days. I'm not there anymore, but that's that's okay. I got Lee Child ahead of me. So uh, 
I'm, you know, I'm really more worried about uh, the next book, which I was working on like half an hour ago, and it's, you know, it's a mess. And, and I'm thinking, that's it. I had, I had my one, you know, one number one, and I'm dead after this. So. <laughs> Well, not to rub it in, but Lee Child was a guest on our previous episode, so he was before you there, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> See? He's a very nice... I've met him a few times. He's a very nice guy, as you guys probably know. And he sold more books in the last hour than I have in my entire life. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Your previous books were the Starvation Lake trilogy, and, of course, now you have Bleak Harbor... Why do you hate bodies of water so much? I love bodies of water. Are you kidding? <laughs> I love lakes in particular. I mean, and, and that go, comes from being, uh, my grandpa had a place on Lake Erie when I was a kid. And then my parents bought a place in northern lower Michigan. And so I grew up going up there in the summers. There's a lake near there called Starvation I stole that name for the town that's in uh, Starvation Lake. There's no town on the real Starvation Lake. And now I'm Bleak Harbor, which is, um, well, there's a bay, you know, an inland bay where the town sits. I love, I love lakes. But, you know, we're mystery thriller writers. So no matter where you said it, bad stuff is going to happen. Right? That's, That's right. So your, your next novel is not going to be called Happy Birthday Lagoon. Actually, the next novel is called Purgatory Bay. <laughs> it's getting darker and darker. Hilarious. It's hilarious. <laughs> well, as a journalist yourself, you made your character of Gus Carpenter in Starvation Lake, also a journalist. So obviously you, you like to write what you know, but the couple at the heart of Bleak Harbor, they have a truly awful marriage. So I'm hoping that you're making a lot of that up. Yeah, I mean, I have a, I have a great marriage. I've been married for 38 years to Pam and uh, I'm a lucky man. But, you know... It, you don't have to look very hard to see crummy marriages. And, you know, it doesn't always have to be a marriage. It could be a relationship, it could be a professional relationship. It's when people start trusting each other, you know, problems happen. And that's part of what happens to Pete and Carrie. Partly because of Pete, partly because of Carrie. It usually takes two for a relationship. Just as it takes two to make a relationship strong, it takes two for the breakdown. And then you throw a, throw a kidnapping into the mix and you really uh, turn up the heat. Yep. That's what we do. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I know in my personal relationship history, kidnappings always kind of throw things off the rails a little. Yeah, I don't mess you up, man. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't want to make this about me. Obviously, it's about you. Especially if you're the one who gets kidnapped. <laughs> <laughs> I've had to fake a couple kidnappings to get out of relationships. Yeah. There you go. I'm sorry. It's not you, it's me. I got kidnapped. I'm out of here. <laughs> Something tells me my wife would uh, not pay a ransom. I don't know. Yeah. You write about small towns, and yet you live in Chicago. So why not write about the Windy City? Well, lots of people write or have written about the Windy City way better than I could. When I first started writing novels, when I was going to write Starvation Lake, I actually considered doing it where I ended up doing it or this sort of gritty part of Detroit. And I, I picked Starvation Lake partly because I thought it was going to be easier. I was mistaken. 
you, you think, well, it's a small town. It's smaller. It's got to be easier, right? But um, there are different, just, there are just different challenges. For one thing, you lose the advantage of anonymity. Whereas a character in a city can wander into almost anywhere and it probably won't be noticed. But when I started writing Gus Carpenter in Starvation Lake, he goes in somewhere and everybody's going to know him. He can't just be, you know, anonymous. And so now I have to create other people. This is a pain in the butt. I got to create other people and give them little histories and actually make them integral to the plot. And then also, I think, especially if you're creating a fictional town, you have to create some sort of history. Now, if you're writing about Chicago or LA or Paris or New York, I mean, you can you can delve into the history of those places, but you don't absolutely have to. In a place like Starvation Lake or Bleak Harbor, the reader wants to know, well, what is this place? Why is it called Bleak Harbor? And what about its past has to do with what I'm reading in its present? And so I, I really tried hard in the case of both of those towns to knit um, its history in, in some significant way into its present. Now, so the Starvation Lake, uh, as of right now, it's three books. And so Bleak Harbor is, uh, you're stepping away from Starvation Lake, at least for a little bit, it's a little bit of time. And was that a little bit of a leap of faith for you? Because after all the successes of the Starvation Lake trilogy, you know, most authors would stick in, uh, stick in that lane and, and stick with what's comfortable and, and easy. Well, um, when I was nearing the end of uh, The Skeleton Box, which is the third book in Starvation Lake, my, my publisher, Touchstone, offered me uh, two more books. And I didn't really, I wasn't really feeling it, although Starvation Lake did very well and Hanging Tree did pretty well. Skeleton Box did not. Here's a piece of advice, guys. Don't have your book come out the same day as Gillian Flynn's Gone Girl. <laughs> and, and so anyway, and there were other editors sort of whispering in my ear, you know, you can you can get out of your comfort zone. Literally, one of them said that to me. And so I embarked on this and it only took me six years <laughs> to get published. When you went to start this book that's uh, out of your comfort zone, did you at least bring the confidence of three successful Starvation Lake books to that? Or was it a little bit like just starting over? It was a little like starting over, particularly when I decided, okay, I'm going to use multiple points of view instead of first person. And I'm going to write it in present tense, which was very different. Um, maybe I'd written 100 pages. I just decided, you know what, I think this would be better. I think it would work better in present tense. I'm going to try that. So I did. And so for me, those were challenges because I'd never really done them before. Well, having successfully gotten out of your comfort zone, in your opinion, what would be the ideal reader response to Bleak Harbor? Brilliant is, is the word <laughs> I think of. Yeah. I just want people to love reading the book. Number one, you want them to get from the first page to the last page. Then number two, you want them to say, I like that. Maybe number three, you want them to think, he didn't cheat. The author didn't cheat. Um, I feel like he was honest or she was honest with me. I don't expect people to like 
characters, so to speak. I don't think likable characters are necessary. I think interesting characters are necessary. And people, you want to find out what happened, happens to them. Well, Brian, I think it's safe to say that you yourself are an interesting character, and I want to see what happens with your career. Oh, thanks. Well, <laughs> I'm 61, so it's going to be a short, a short one from here. So. Well, I have a really short attention span, so that works out perfect for me. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, our next guest is author Terry Shames, who writes the Samuel Craddock series of mysteries. There are seven Samuel Craddock books so far, and Terry shows no signs of slowing down. I wonder if she'll take our advice to send Samuel into space. <laughs> Seems like the logical next step. Samuel Craddock, Moonraker. <laughs> Terry, uh, you're a Texas girl who has lived in a few other states over the years. Mm -hmm. What is one thing that people who aren't from Texas always get wrong about the Lone Star State? Oh boy, that's a good question. It has changed so much since I lived there. But when I lived there, what people used to always think is that everyone had an oil well and a horse. <laughs> and that's not true? Wait, what? No, it's not true. <laughs> and these days, I don't know. I, it's very interesting because the political climate is so very odd there. And I haven't lived there in many years. And for me, it's kind of hard to go back, although. I do go back to Austin because I really love Austin. Well, you live in Berkeley, California now. Uh, uh -huh. And yet you write about this small fictitious town called Jarrett Creek right. in, in your Samuel Craddock series. Does that, the distance you have now from it give you kind of a different perspective on Texas that you can write about? I really think it does. Yeah. But actually the reason I'm able to write about Texas is that my, I used to love to go visit my grandparents and this town is set where they used to live. And I fictionalized it so that I could move it around the state wherever it needed to be in whatever book. But it, but that's why I actually wrote about, about Texas. And I felt as if this was a place I knew and it was a place that no one knew as well as I did. So I feel like it's really my setting. And my husband sometimes reads the books and he says, you know, this could be said in Berkeley, actually. So maybe I've got it wrong. Well, I think in Berkeley, pretty much everyone has a horse and an oil well, right? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> well, and Terry, in doing my research about you, I was fascinated to learn that you joined the CIA out of college. Um, we've already told you that we're recording this call. Uh huh. Are, are you recording it too? No, I'm not. <laughs> So you're just saying I'm paranoid, right? That's No, you know, I, I joined the CIA right out of college because I really wasn't sure what to do with myself. And there was a recruiter on campus and I said, boy, that sounds cool. And it actually was cool. Well, uh, the industry, the publishing industry definitely loves uh, have an author that has some sort of law enforcement background or right. especially the CIA. And it, mm -hmm. it seems like you, you avoided that trap of just going and writing, you know, international spy thrillers. Right. Did your interest in wanting to join the CIA and thinking that was sort of a cool thing, is that uh, influence at all your love of just mystery and, and the, the bigger picture? You know, I always love mysteries. When I worked for the CIA, I was in the China division and I had a, a very 
super top secret clearance because I used to be the person who read documents. Why they would let a 21-year-old do this, I don't know, but I read all the documents that came in on the China division and I got to say who got to see them. So it it was an amazing, it was an amazing job, but I don't think it really had much to do with my love of mysteries. That's just been always ingrained in me. Actually, if I could write science fiction, that's what I'd write. So that's really. Where, I mean, I, my first book I ever wrote was science fiction, and I realized when I I love to read it, and it just requires such imagination. If you've created uh, you know, Jarrett Creek uh, out of just your imagination, I mean, it can't uh-huh. be that that much of a leap to go from creating an entire town and all of its inhabitants to creating a science fiction world and an, another planet, maybe. Maybe, but you know. I, I mean, I read science fiction and I just think, wow, you know, it's not just the creating of the place, it's the creating of what's happening in the place. Terry, don't sell yourself short because I could (laughs) definitely see Samuel Craddock at the Jarrett Creek Space Settlement on Mars. (laughs) Just maybe so, but that's because of who he is. You know, he's a really solid character. He's a person who. I admire him so much, and I think, how does he come out of my head? It's just amazing to me that I write somebody that I think is so, he's an upright guy. He's really, he believes in justice, but he's also compassionate. He's um, funny. He's um, He's got certain opinions about things that he has a wry sense of humor about. And um, every time I start writing about him, I feel like, I feel like I'm looking over his shoulder. But I, you know, I suppose you're right. I could see him on another planet. <laughs> <laughs> I would throw your uh, your dedicated readers for a loop. Yes, I would. <laughs> the <laughs> next book. Now, hold on, we're willing to take a lot of places with you, but not that. <laughs> yeah, sheriff in space. <laughs> One of the interesting things you did when you first launched the Samuel Craddock series is you actually started by making him a retired police chief. Yes. Um, Are there any pitfalls to starting the series at the end of his career? You know, uh, here's the thing. I wanted to write about an older protagonist because I was sick to death of reading these protagonists where the cop or the private eye goes and knocks on a door and this little old lady answers the door, a little old man, and they're all gnarly and they've got gray hair and they can hardly walk. And they're just looking, they're peering at him with little funny eyes. And then he says, she must be at least 60. <laughs> I'm thinking, <"Now>, come on. <laughs> so I wanted a guy who was vital, who was um, still had a lot to offer. And the first book is actually about him reengaging with life because his wife has been ill. She's just died. And then when a very close friend gets killed, he feels like he has to investigate because the current chief of police is the town drunk. So, uh, <laughs> and that, I mean, that was a character I loved writing, actually. Well, a, a lot of people would probably assume that Samuel has has a lot of you in him. But uh, now we know better than I, this uh, town drunk sheriff sounds like maybe that's you writing yourself into the book, right? Uh, no, haha, very funny. <laughs> But in fact, he's one of the only characters that is drawn directly from life, but I will never say who it is. (laughs) (laughs) It's Steve. You could say it's Steve. (laughs) Listen, I I would completely own that, but it was years ago. (laughs) (laughs) A Reckoning in the Backcountry, which is your most recent book in the series, uh, actually revolves around dogfighting. And I was interested to know how you got interested in that as the topic of the book. 
right after the first book came out, I, I somehow read something. I don't remember exactly what it was, but I thought I have got to write that one day. And finally, it seemed like it was time to do it. And I actually interviewed a woman whose husband had been into dogfighting, and I read a lot about it, and it is a fascinating topic. I, you know, it's a hard topic. I was, I shied away from it because it's really tough. It's an awful, awful subject. And one of the reasons that the reasons that it still exists is that uh, if lawmen pursue it, they can be killed. And when the dogfighters are caught, the penalties are so low that it's absolutely not worth their time to do it. People might at the most spend six months in jail for dogfighting. It's just, it's horrendous. And then because I knew my readership, I know that they, you know, might be really put off by that. I decided to give them something else too. And that is that Samuel gets a puppy and a new main squeeze. <laughs> so, <laughs> Well, Eric, you know, our listeners really love a good writing tip. And I think Terry Shames just gave us a fantastic one. When in doubt, puppy. Yep. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Got to balance the scales. You know, the crazy part is the puppy came in on his own. You know, Samuel is walking around and he hears something. And I said, what can it be? Is it a snake? Is I said, no, it's a puppy. I said, where did the puppy come from? <laughs> Your subconscious. Subconscious is so wonderful. And if I have any tip for writers, it's listen to your subconscious. Just write it out there. And eventually you'll know whether it's real or not. But but, you know, let your subconscious have its, um, have its say. Yeah, unfortunately for me, every time that scenario came up, it would just be another town drunk and it would just be a book <laughs> full of town drunks. <laughs> well, Steve, we've given our favorite picks of the year. I think we need to hear from the Malmans about what they loved in 2018. I mean, aside from you and I. <laughs> well, naturally. All right, Dan, Kate, welcome back. It's the end of the year. We've all had a good 2018 of reading some great books, but we want to know what some of your top picks of the year are. All right, so when I was thinking about my top book of the year, I was thinking about what's the book that when I was giving recommendations to people, what was the one that I kept coming back to this year? And one this year was The Night of the Flood, uh, edited by Ed Amar and Sarah Chen. And... The premise of it is fantastic where they lay out that a woman has killed a man who had sexually assaulted her. The woman is sentenced to death. Uh, Activist group comes out and says, hey, if you, you know, if you kill this woman, we will flood the town. We will blow up the, the dam. Woman is executed. Dam blows up. Then that's when the book starts. And it's an anthology, so each short story is its own succinct story. But what I really appreciated and really enjoyed reading was that each story ties to the next. So you can read them in whatever order you want. And I think it was incredibly clever and very well thought out and very well done. And I tip my hat to both Ed and Sarah for being able to pull something like that off. Yeah, those guys got a lot of praise for that book. And I think it was really well-deserved because it was a really fantastic idea. And for a lot of people, that's going to be enough. But they actually pulled it off. Oh, definitely, definitely. And I hope that in 2019, they get nominated and win all of the awards that they should because it's very well-deserving. Well, it's I mean, it's kind of hard to categorize in a way because, like you say, it's it's a collection of short stories. But really, it's kind of a collaborative novel, wouldn't you say? 
Oh, definitely. It's interesting to see how they weave together, like a character that shows up in one story ends up showing up at the end in a different story. Awesome. Dan, you got to, what, what stuck with you this year? You're stuck with me this year? No, what, well, what, <laughs> we're, we're stuck with you for longer than that. But what's, uh, what did you read that you handed out to a bunch of other people? Absolutely. Um, very much like Kate said, finding your, your favorite read of the year is not scientific. You know, so it's what, what do you keep um, going back to? What are you talking about uh, the most with your friends? I read Jar of Hearts, I think, in February. And I said then, this is my book of the year. And it, no other challengers knocked it off. That's the book that, that stuck with me all year. Jennifer Hillier, I really think terms like breakout book or, or overnight success are kind of overplayed. But that's the book that uh, has really shined a light on her as an author. She made a, a fan out of me. Um, and I put this book into a lot of people's hands this year. I uh, did a lot of hand selling, um, and I hope she wins all the awards. Jar of Hearts. Awesome. So is there anything uh, you guys have your eye on for next year that you're anticipating? I'm reading an arc of Miraculum by Steph Post. Oh, yeah. I want to so read that. I'm halfway through it, and it's it's this beautifully written book. It's fantastic, and I'm, I'm really, really enjoying it. Cool. Um, I think I've got a copy of um, My Darkest Prayer by Sean Cosby. Um, oh. It'll be arriving on my door shortly. Sometimes you get you get a little um, fried out. You get a little stale. Um, so the you have to keep searching out um, new authors or new to you authors. Um, and I'm very excited to, uh, to see what Cosby's got to offer. I know he's getting a lot of praise, um, and I'm really looking forward to it. I'm sure uh, our listeners are really looking forward to your reviews of those books. And on behalf of our listeners and on behalf of Eric and I, we wanted to say thank you so much for two years of incredible book reviews. You guys have given us some really amazing recommendations and we and we can't appreciate you enough. Oh, thanks, guys. Thanks, guys. We've really enjoyed being part of the Writer Types family and Brain Trust. And it's been a great two years. We've really enjoyed it. Happy holidays, happy new year, and happy reading. Well, both of those books they mentioned that they're looking forward to in 2019 are also high up on my list. And uh, spoiler alert, I actually had a chance to read that S.A. Cosby book, My Darkest Prayer, and it's really good. You're going to want to check that out. Yeah, people are really raving about it already on Twitter. I can't wait to get my hands on a copy. Anything you're looking forward to next year, Steve, in January? Well... You know, it's top of mind because we were just talking to Dan Malman, who loves comic books. But uh, I know an author named Jeff Rugby, who worked in the music industry for years, who's going to be releasing um, his first graphic novel or comic book. It's called Gunning for Hits, a music thriller. And it sort of chronicles the, his experience in the music industry and riffs on some of his favorite rock stars. And I got a chance to take a look at it. And it is Excellent. Uh, it's got a crime story background. I think that's going to be something that our readers are really going to dig. And then I'm also looking to, I'm, I'm not sure if you've heard of this other author. Um, let me, hold on, let me look it up really quick because I uh, his name's not one that sticks in your head. 
Eric Beatner has a book coming out called All the Way Down from Down and Out Books. You know anything about that? I do. Uh, it comes out January 7th, and I'm really proud of it. And darn it, if it's not a pretty good book. At least that's what uh, Meg Gardner had to say when she gave me a blurb, and uh, Glenn Eric Hamilton, and Frank Zafiro, and Rob Hart. So, uh, oh, Sean Doolittle, all those people have gotten an early look at it and uh, said good things. Well, I'm really looking forward to it, Eric. I, I, I'm continually impressed by your talent and your output, and I'm sure that this will be another excellent Eric Beatner novel. I'm suspicious. Is there a joke coming? Is there some sort of sarcastic swing? I I think in this case, the joke tells itself. (laughs) Well, Steve, I have one more book to sneak into my favorite picks of the year, and that's Charles Gate Confidential by Scott Vondoviak. Well, that's a real coincidence, Eric, because Scott's our next guest. Roll the tape. So, Steve, you're, you might have to take a back seat for a little bit while Scott and I uh, go down memory lane here because uh, I was really interested in this book, Charles Gate Confidential, because of my personal connection to this story. And a lot of people may not know, but the Charles Gate is an actual building in Boston, a building that I lived in for two years in college when it was an Emerson College dorm. And Scott, you live there too. And you worked in all the weird stories and myths and legends that surround this building and that every freshman hears their first week when, when they move in. When you lived there, were you looking around thinking, oh, my God, I got to write about this place? Uh, I don't think so, but it stuck with me, you know, for all, all the reasons you said, the weird stories, you know, plus just, I mean, I lived there for three years, so I made friends you know, there that I still have to this day. So it comes up in conversation, you know, pretty fr- frequently. And uh, eventually I, I I thought, well, I should write something about it somehow. <laughs> and, and some of those stories, I mean, like literally a part of your orientation when, when you're moving in is like, you, you can't, uh, you can't bring in Ouija boards because allegedly the place is haunted. It, it has it has this notorious past that you weaved in with uh, with gangsters and stuff. I mean, tell us a little bit of, of these myths and legends that surround this building. Well, the gangster thing may or may not be my own invention. I, I in, in my research, you know, I did, you know, the building was uh, originally a hotel dating back to the 1890s and sort of had a haunted reputation almost from the start. There was speculation that the architect uh, had designed it to attract paranormal activity, like something out of Ghostbusters or something, and that he had killed himself in the building, which turned out not to be true. He just died of natural causes in the building. (laughs) Not as exciting. But, um, you know, the hotel fell on hard times eventually through the depression. And, you know, there were rumors that the mob had taken it over. So I just kind of took that and ran with it. And of course, by the time I moved into it, it had been a women's dorm for Boston University in the 60s. And then it had been this kind of flop house in the 70s where there was all kinds of rumors about, you know, satanic cults living in there and stuff like that. So, you know, uh, there was a lot to work with. And, um, you know, I, I sort of picked and chose what I thought would fit the story. It, and it, it was on the verge of, uh, of being condemned. I remember when we moved out. <laughs> it was, I shortly after I left, only by a couple of years, I think they were like, shut it down. This, this place needs to be completely renovated. And it has been completely renovated. It probably wouldn't surprise anyone to learn that it's luxury condos now. 
Boo. So, Eric, did you hear rumors of Scott's legendary partying when you were going to school there at Charlesgate? Oh, yes. The, the, the place was, was haunted. Not only it was haunted by allegedly a little girl in the back stairwell who would bounce a red ball. That's what I heard. Uh, yeah. And then you heard about, uh, oh, my God, you should have known this dude. He threw these parties. <laughs> Scott, you're still haunting the dorm. Yeah. Or I'm sorry, the luxury condos. Yeah. Well, it was certainly haunted by, you know, rats and collapsing ceilings and, you know. <laughs> The novel takes place on three parallel timelines, all related to each other in some ways, but each timeline is really an individual story. So how many times during the writing were you kicking yourself for coming up with such a complicated way of telling a story? Oh, you know, throughout. I mean, <laughs> you, know, you know, I wanted to work as much of the history in as possible, which is why I hit on that idea of the three overlapping timelines. It was kind of, helpful in a way because um, as I was writing, I would leave myself a little cliffhanger, say, at the end of a chapter set in 1946. And I didn't have to resolve it right away because I was going to write about, you know, 1986 next. So it would get, I'd get to ferment a little while uh, how, how I was going to, you know, follow up um, what had happened in the earlier timeline. So. Well, it sounds, Scott, like it sounds like this was a clever way of procrastinating for you. <laughs> <laughs> I, that's one way of looking at it. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. <laughs> Well, uh, you did use some of these these real life events uh, as jumping off points. I mean, how much real life is in there, uh, but how much of it was just a kernel of inspiration for you? Well, I needed some kind of big crime to kind of tie everything together. And Chuck Hogan had already done uh, robbing Fenway Park and Prince of Thieves, which of course became the town. So I couldn't do that. I wanted it to somehow tie into Boston history and lore. So there was this Gardner Museum heist that happened in 1990. Uh, it was perfect, except I needed it to happen in 1946. I just plucked it out of history and moved it back in time, used what, uh, what real facts I could, and then uh, invented the rest. And uh, you know, I sprinkled little things like that throughout. Certainly, um, Red Sox history uh, sort of weaves its way through the background of all three storylines. So that, that, in addition to the Charles Gate, were the two things that sort of tie everything together initially when you're reading it and you, you think that the three stories don't seem to have much in common. And then eventually you find out that they, it really is, you know, one big story. How does it feel to have your debut novel out on a venerable imprint like Hard Case Crime? Uh, oh, it's fantastic. I kind of sent it to them just out of, like I had had an agent and he gave up on it very quickly <laughs> and I didn't know what to do next. And I said, you know, I can really see this in one of those hard case covers with the lurid art on the, on the front. And uh, I just emailed out of the blue and uh, Charles R. Dye at uh, Hard Case wrote me back after a few days and said, this never, ever happens. Don't ever encourage anyone to send me an unsolicited uh, manuscript. So if you're listening, you know, don't do that. But <laughs> it did work in my case. He really, you know, kind of flipped for it and bought it and... Um, it's great. He sent it to Stephen King and he read it and gave me a cover blurb. So it's almost still unbelievable that that happened. Hey, so while you're at it, why don't you just give out Charles Ardai's email address for all the writers <laughs> that listen? I will say it's not that hard to find. He could have been better. <laughs> yeah, for, for somebody who wants to prevent this from happening, he needs to cover himself a little better. <laughs> you, you currently live in Austin, Texas. Did you go back to Boston to do research for your book? Well, yeah, I go back pretty frequently. I try to get there, you know, once or twice a year anyway, because I still have lots of friends there. So I went back, um, you know, I, I 
visited the Charles Gate. I was never able to get in until this last time I was back there. There were some people hanging out out front and I kind of snuck into the lobby and looked around and it, you know, it's a little cleaner than in my day. A little. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I did some digging around at the Boston Public Library and, you know, just trying to find some more information about the building and about some old uh, Boston lore I could weave in. Well, it, you have some strong opinions about uh, some of the floors in Charles Gate, including, uh, I got to say, some disparaging remarks about the eighth floor dwellers. And I lived on the eighth floor. The eighth, uh, you know, there was hardly ever reason, any reason to ever go up there. It's true. Small, it was like one hallway, and I don't know. It just seemed like uh, uh, it was a little claustrophobic for me. Well, that's I, I went and moved there because I requested a single. So that it was it was a bunch of singles up there. Yeah, it was like a half floor. Like you could climb out on the roof because it was like it didn't go to the edge of the building. It was right. yeah, it was very odd. Eric Beatner always finding a way to be alone. <laughs> <laughs> that's yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, Scott, if you could write your next novel about another place where you have lived, what would best fit a crime story? Uh, well, uh, I lived in Los Angeles for about five years. No crime stories have ever been written here, so it's I know. Ground. That's why I'm, I'm, I'm eagerly tackling it now, and I'm like, wow, I can't believe. I mean, how, how is this possible that no one has ever used this <laughs> backdrop? It's, it's crazy. Well, good luck with that, man. There's not much competition out there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, Steve, it's been two years of making this show, and I've had a blast. Yeah, I'm totally tired, too. <laughs> well, that's why we're taking some time off. We will be going on hiatus until February, when we'll be back with new shows, new guests, and hopefully for both of us, new books that we finished writing over the break. Yeah, that would be nice. Uh, I'd also like to see my wife and children. But before we leave you for two months, we have a final book to give away this year. Our friends at Down and Out Books are giving a copy of Tom Pitt's novel 101 to a lucky listener. Last episode, we invited you to find us on Twitter and give us your Crime Writing 101 tips. And our winner is... John Bender. Who gave us this tip. Gritty and real is good, but don't be afraid to go over the top once in a while. Real life is stranger than fiction, especially when it comes to colorful characters and crime. That's some solid advice, Eric. Absolutely. And uh, that really applies to the book that I'm writing now, where I have run up against a couple of instances where I thought, well, that's just too ridiculous. You can't put that in a book. You're describing my whole approach to fiction. <laughs> Well, Steve, that's it for this time and this year. What did we learn? Brian Gruley taught us that getting kidnapped really puts a cramp in your relationships. And Terry Shames taught us, when in doubt, add puppies. And Scott Vandoviak taught us to ignore all submission forms and just send your book to the head of the company and you'll probably get published and get blurred by Stephen King. Jeez, that's how it works. Well, thanks for listening for these first two years. If you want to give us a present this holiday season, you could leave us a review on iTunes and subscribe to the show. As always, the show is produced and edited by Eric Beatner and S.W. Loudon. For more on Steve's books, visit swloudon.com. And for more on Eric's books, including All the Way Down, go to ericbeatner.com. See you again in February. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.